to the Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast, featuring Barry Dunn Healthcare Practice Group professionals and expert guests discussing their insights into contemporary as well as perennial healthcare regulatory, revenue integrity, general compliance, and risk management topics. I'm Regina Alexander, Barry Dunn's Director of Independent Review Organization Services. I'm joined for this episode by Barry Dunn Healthcare Practice Group Senior Manager, Cheryl Gregory. In this episode, we consider the unique role of the Board of Directors within effective healthcare compliance programs. Before we get into our discussion, though, a quick disclaimer. The content we discuss in this podcast is based on our professional experience advising healthcare providers, facilities, and other organizations engaging Barry Dunn for independent review organization, revenue integrity, government program compliance, and credentialing support services. While we may reference specific government programs, Medicare and Medicaid policies, and regulatory guidance, we do not speak for CMS, the HHS OCR, the HHS OIG, the DOJ, or any other government agency or contractor, nor do we have the authority to do so. Nothing in this podcast should be considered legal advice, Anyone seeking legal advice on the subjects we discuss should consult their own attorney. Thanks for taking the time to join the podcast, Cheryl. Before we get too carried away discussing the important role of board oversight within an effective healthcare compliance program, would you share a bit about your professional background and your areas of expertise? Sure. I'm excited to be here, Regina. I started my healthcare career as a nurse in 1997 in the medical surgical oncological unit, and then the emergency department, ICU, and the cath lab. And I really enjoyed the adrenaline rush in those specialties. A supervisor asked me at some point, I don't remember when, to aggregate some metrics and audit some of their processes. What an accidental fortune. I hadn't realized how much I enjoyed processes and finding ways to set up an organization for success and predicted outcomes. That led me to become a risk manager and a process improvement specialist. I found that extremely rewarding, putting policies in place to safeguards, safeguard our clinicians and other stakeholders. These roles were so fulfilling that I decided to pursue law school so I could be a better advocate for organizations and my healthcare colleagues. With my law degree, I worked in corporate compliance and managed professional liability claims, quality, and risk management. I'm grateful to be able to leverage my experience in education to advocate for those who advocate for patients, organizations, and our communities. Thanks, Cheryl. Your deep, diverse array of credentials and experiences really makes you the perfect guest to share insights on this episode's topic. As we know, the foundation of an effective healthcare compliance program is developing a compliance plan that addresses the organization's full panoply of risks, as well as regulatory obligations. Chapter 8 of the U.S. Federal Sentencing Guidelines forms the basis for what we have come to know as the seven elements of a compliance program. With respect to the board of directors, according to the guidelines, to receive credit for having an effective compliance program and reduce fines, a board of directors must be knowledgeable about the content and operation of the compliance and ethics program and must, quote, exercise reasonable oversight with respect to the implementation and effectiveness of the compliance and ethics program. In a nutshell, 
what is the responsibility relative to compliance of a healthcare organization's board of directors? Well, in a nutshell, board of directors of healthcare organizations have two main objectives as far as the OIG HHS are concerned. Just two simple things, promote quality of care and oversee and ensure an effective compliance program. But having an effective compliance program, according to the Department of Justice, can be a mitigating factor when assessing culpability, potentially resulting in reduced penalties and for and or more favorable settlement terms. So what does that mean in practical terms? Well, we need to look at several credible resources for guidance on how to demonstrate effectiveness. These first two center more around the unique fiduciary duties of directors of healthcare related to compliance, whereas the third one focuses more on the quality of care obligations. And we're seeing a lot more enforcement efforts centered around quality than we had in the past. So the first one is the OIG, HCCA, AHLA Practical Guidance for Healthcare Governing Boards on Compliance Oversight, or what I affectionately consider the Lighthouse Report from 2015. And then the second one is uh, as a result of a roundtable discussion between the Healthcare Compliance Association and the OIG. And I think we all know what I'm talking about here, measuring compliance program effectiveness, the resource guide. Then the third one is from the Health and Human Services and American Health Law Association publication, Corporate Responsibility and Healthcare Quality Resource for Healthcare Boards. And then my favorite, last but not least, the Binkowski memo from 2018 and the new, new revised version 2020. And these are part of the U.S. sentencing guidelines designed to instruct their prosecutors to consider three key questions when they're looking at whether or not a compliance program is effective. Is the corporate compliance program well designed? Is it, is it the program being applied earnestly and in good faith or in other words, adequately resourced and empowered? And thirdly, does the compliance program actually work in practice. So Cheryl, I hope you'll indulge me in an in for instance question. And we all hate those for instance questions, but <laughs> to illustrate for our listeners, um, if an organization finds itself in trouble uh, in a data breach, false claims act allegations, or maybe an anti-kickback statutes case, when we talk about the board, and an effective compliance program, can an individual board member be held liable for failing to exercise compliance oversight? Yes, they can, Regina. Personal liability for directors is a reality. This can come in the form of removal, civil damages, tax liability, and reputational damage. To quote the corporate responsibility and corporate compliance document that we referenced earlier, Organizations may be at risk and directors under circumstances also may be at risk if they fail to reasonably oversee an organization's compliance program or act as mere passive recipients of information. It's why it's so extremely important to have a compliance literate and intellectually curious board member who asks those tough questions and holds leadership accountable. This ties into some key areas, right? Duty of care, which refers to the obligation of corporate directors to exercise proper amounts of care in their decision making. And this is true for both nonprofit and for-profit organizations. How do you demonstrate duty of care by using what they call reasonable inquiry? Is the board getting information necessary to satisfy their duty of care? Are they being presented information on organizational performance, patient safety, financial relationship, gain sharing, outcomes management arrangements, those kinds of things. 
And then whether or not they're using the business judgment rule. Directors generally will not be held individually liable for a decision if they've made it in good faith, where a a director is disinterested, meaning objective, not disengaged, uh, reasonably informed under the circumstances, and rationally believes the decision to be made in the best interest of the corporation. Then lastly, are they using the duty of obedience, obligations for nonprofit boards to oversee quality of care initiatives that the corporate purpose and mission are being advanced? All right. So just like everything else in healthcare compliance, it sounds like the oversight responsibility of the board is a bit more nuanced than it sounds. Back in September 2015, former U.S. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates released what has since frequently been cited as the Yates Memo. That memo addressed individual accountability for corporate wrongdoing and signaled the government's intention to hold decision makers accountable. A year later, in September 2016, there was a DOJ announcement of a significant settlement that provides a point, in fact, that we could discuss. The North American Healthcare Incorporated, a for-profit provider of skilled nursing facility services, reached a $30 million settlement with the DOJ to resolve False Claims Act allegations relative to medically unnecessary rehabilitation services. While settlement announcements under the FCA aren't so unusual, there's several of them a month, in fact, the settlement specifically cited the responsibility of the chairman of the board, and that chairman personally settled for $1 million. Whereas the NAHC example can be dismissed by some listeners because the organization is for-profit and the board included executives knowledgeable about the types of services the organization provides, and essentially the chairman should have known better regarding the board's obligations, not-for-profit boards are typically comprised of volunteer community members from different professions and possibly not exactly compliance experts, right? So how can not-for-profit healthcare organization board members be held accountable for the oversight of a complex function like regulatory compliance? I hope you can illuminate this, Cheryl. Well, often volunteer directors operate under the wrong assumption that they're insulated from liability based on the voluntary nature of their participation on the board, right? But I would caution anyone to have that false sense of security. It's often said of non-profits, the means and mission are inseparable. To that end, boards need to be mindful of their corporation and how it was formed to achieve a specific goal or objective. That includes furthering the organization's purpose, using the articles of incorporation or bylaws to guide what they're doing. Nonprofit board members can be held accountable if they fail to do certain things, such as cultivate the appropriate level of expertise. So you could consider adding to the board periodically or hiring a consultant expert to provide education and training. The Model Nonprofit Corporation Act has been adopted by a lot of states and imposes an imposition of duty of good faith, loyalty, and due care. And volunteer directors can be held liable for things such as a sustained failure to devote attention to the oversight of the affairs of a corporation failure to devote timely attention to make appropriate inquiry if the conduct proximately caused harm to the corporation, the amount of any financial benefit they may have received but were not entitled to receive, or to any action resulting from any lack of objectivity due to the director or their family's financial or business relationship. 
or a director's domination by another person interested in the challenged conduct. And the director did not reasonably believe that such conduct was in the best interest of the corporation. And then lastly, the director's assent to a distribution made in violation of it, of the MNCA, which was not done in good faith, or which they didn't believe was in the best interest of the corporation. And then lastly, the business opportunity rule. Don't allow a director to usurp a business opportunity that should have been first offered to the nonprofit corporation. Can you share the typical barriers you've observed in engaging boards to recognize their compliance responsibilities? You bet. Some of the things that first come to mind are, one, ignorance and inexperience. Uh, not understanding their individual and collective responsibilities as board members. Compliance literacy really is key. This is where proper selection process, robust onboarding, and ongoing education contribute meaningfully to setting the board and the organization up for success. The second thing that comes to my mind is passivity, the inability to demonstrate taking an active role in overseeing compliance. Boards need to be mindful of not delegating so much that they're unable to and to quote the federal sentencing guidelines, articulate or be knowledgeable about the content and operations of the compliance and ethics program. In fact, most enforcement cases center around the findings from the OIG that boards provided inadequate oversight and support for compliance programs, often resulting as a result of lacking relative and relevant expertise. Again, back to board selection, education, and active engagement, right? And if we look at enforcement activities, a lot of CIAs that involve lack of expertise and adequate oversight will include engaging a compliance expert to assist the board in meeting its obligations. Some boards will argue, well, we have the requisite expertise, but the DOJ doesn't buy it. Why? Because oftentimes these board members don't have the experience as being a compliance officer or participating in auditing and evaluating a compliance program. Some organizations I've heard argue that, well, they haven't had any significant regulatory issues. Therefore, our program must be working wrong. Just because they've dodged the bullet doesn't mean that the program is working. Compliance programs can't exclusively live on paper. Truly effective compliance programs are palpable within the organization's culture. And this brings me to another important feature the Department of Justice is looking for. As to accountability, how do we hold the team responsible qualitatively and quantitatively using metrics, scorecards, self-evaluations? The Department of Justice that organizations, I expect organizations to use lessons learned to modify their current processes, policies, and corrective action plans. Quoting the Binkowski memo, prosecutors consider the effectiveness of a compliance company's risk assessment and the manner in which the company's compliance program has been tailored based on that risk assessment and whether its criteria are periodically updated. So in a nutshell, the Department of Justice will consider revisions to a corporate compliance program in light of lessons learned. Now they don't expect perfection, right? But they do expect organizations to modify what they're doing based on what those outcomes are. Are there effective mechanisms and safeguards in place to prevent, detect, and alter the course? I think the next one would be tone at the top. Articulating and demonstrating throughout the entire organization the ongoing commitment to compliance and ethics, whether that's consistently holding others appropriately accountable, 
consistent messaging, reinforcing non-retaliatory policies, and adhering to the code of conduct, these all reflect the board's expectations of themselves and all stakeholders within the organization. When there's a lack of accountability and different rules for different folks, that's when organizations run into trouble. And then I think the last one would be perspective. It's not just about doing things the way we've always done it, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. An effective board is always forward-thinking, playing the long game, and staying abreast of regulatory and industry trends and issues. Wow, it sounds like training and education for the board members is a really important element of meaningful oversight to be sure that they understand everything they're accountable for. So if we take it up to 36,000 feet, what type of compliance training for board members do you typically recommend given all their responsibilities and everything they're accountable for and how frequent and what topics are definite musts? If we think about the board as a governing body, they need to understand certain things like the organizational structure and operations, right? So all directors need to be familiar with the key employee responsibilities for the program's operation, functioning of the program, how the board is to receive the information, how they're monitoring the organization's compliance program, compliance issues that arise, and what metrics are available to assess the efficacy of the current compliance infrastructure. How do those comport to the seven elements of an effective compliance program? How do operations and outcomes align with prosecutorial criterion, right? And Medicare Part C and D contractors also require first-tier and downstream entity board members to receive general compliance, fraud, waste, abuse training, those kinds of things, within 90 days of their appointment and at least annually thereafter. They also have to understand what their own fiduciary duties are and what the relevant regulations are. So obviously, we've spoken about fraud, waste, and abuse already, anti-kickback, Stark, Imtala, HIPAA, false claims, civil monetary penalty laws, exclusion authorities, those types of things. And then to touch back on something we mentioned earlier, policies and procedures and codes of conduct. Members of the board need to be familiar with both the substance of their organization's policies and procedures, as well as the mechanisms by which the policies and procedures are revised and kept current. Wow. So, okay. Once the board is educated on their responsibilities, how often should the organization's compliance officer be presenting reports to the board? And I'm going to throw in a curveball here. Just for expediency, is it okay for another member of the leadership team, say the CEO, COO, to be tasked with presenting the compliance report to the board instead of the compliance officer? Well, that one's a doozy, Regina. <laughs> That really depends on the size of the organization, the resources available to them, and the current state of its compliance program. There's really no one-size-fits-all recommendation, but at a minimum, I would recommend that the compliance officer meet directly with the board at least quarterly. As to another member of the leadership team presenting compliance to the board, it's really not best practice. And why? Let's step back for a minute and remember what the role of the compliance officer is. They're there to act as a sort of checks and balances with regard to the C-suite and other leadership stakeholders, right? So I like to think of that type of arrangement. If, if the CEO or COO is preventing the compliance officer from meeting directly with the board, is like the fox guarding the hen house. 
In that scenario, the board could arguably hear very filtered information. Best practice and industry standards reflect that the compliance officers have unfettered access to the board regularly and have the opportunity to meet with the board without the C-suite present. Wow. So if, if the board is properly trained, they would uh, kind of be aware that it's not great that the compliance officer isn't delivering the information directly is what I hear you say. You bet. All right. Okay. So let's assume now that our, our board is hopefully interested in compliance and recognizing many compliance officers are way deep in the weeds of particular issues and the entire board meeting itself won't necessarily, as much as we would like, be dedicated to the compliance report, what categories of topics or how in-depth should the compliance officer be prepared to go when there are questions from the board members? Sure. So just an overview, I would present program administration issues, right? Barriers and resources, survey results, compliance committee activities, Screening of employees, vendors, and third parties, high-risk issues, including general and professional liability claims, and potential compensatory events, training efforts as, resu as results, as well as lessons learned. Remember, there's a balance between informing and reassuring the board that appropriate measures are being taken to address system vulnerabilities. And then I would explain to them about what investigations are going on, what turnaround times we have, what the results are, what reports are involved, regulatory remediation efforts, disciplinary efforts, root cause analyses and failure modes and effectiveness analysis activities that are conducted. And we need to be, be prepared to articulate an overview of each component, avoid unnecessary detail. The board's there to govern and hold accountable, not to manage operations. Well, that's a great point, because I think sometimes it's uh, tempting to give a whole bunch of details, but really it's, it's more of an overview, but being prepared to answer questions. Seems like we could chat on all these subtopics around board oversight for hours. And um, Cheryl, I think you and I actually have. <laughs> we have. <laughs> but as our time together draws to a close, um, what are the top takeaways you'd like our listeners to think about with respect to board oversight in effective compliance programs? Hmm. I think I'd, I'd have to say be actively involved in compliance and set ethical standards. Be that safe person others can come to with their concerns or where they can learn how to navigate unfamiliar territory. I think oftentimes we are thinking of ourselves as that complaint box, but oftentimes we're also those people that have to uh, or are, um, are lucky enough to be able to mentor new and emerging leaders. So we need to know that we're mentors and be able to help them navigate that unfamiliar territory. Be sure your board can articulate the efforts being undertaken within the organization to further the mission and the vision. And I think lastly, I would leave the listeners to establish clear and candid methods of communicating risks and opportunities to the board. Great tips. Thanks for sharing your insights, Cheryl. In the description area of this episode, we're including links to several resources that we've mentioned that compliance officers and current healthcare services organization board members may find helpful to learn more about the roles and responsibilities of boards within an effective healthcare compliance program. But unfortunately, we've reached the conclusion of our discussion. 
So on behalf of myself and Cheryl, we thank you for listening to this episode of Barry Dunn's Healthcare Insights, Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast. We welcome listener questions and feedback about the ideas we discussed in this episode, as well as suggestions for topics we should consider developing for future episodes. 